Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the third episode, that is right, number three of our Take It or Leave It podcast, focused exclusively on workplace leaves, absence management, and accommodations. I'm Josh Seidman, and I'm joined once again by my brilliant colleague and co-host, Meg Toth. Meg, what a wonderful time of year it is, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I say this every year, but I can't believe it's the holidays already. And of course, yet again, I'm entirely unprepared. But it is really one of my you know, favorite times of the year, especially now I have you know, young kids that are getting to an age where they're starting to know what's going on, the decorations, all the excitement, spending time with friends and family and all that good stuff. But from a professional standpoint, you can't also forget it is employee handbook season. So getting lots of work from clients updating handbooks and getting their policies up into good shape for 2022. You are so right. I mean, forget about gingerbread houses and dreidels and snowmen and decorations and, and all that fun holiday cheer. You know, this year, I mean, I, I know my stockings and I, I know because we work together enough, your stockings too have been totally stuffed with plenty of policy and handbook work. It is coming at us in waves, which is great. It's been a great thing to wind down 2022. And thankfully, you know, SciFarth has such a deep bench of skilled counselors to keep everything organized and up to date. I mean, last month, we even hosted a webinar featuring members of our handbook and policy team. The webinar was titled Developing and Maintaining an Employee Handbook, an Addenda for Every State. And if I believe uh, I'm remembering correctly, Meg, weren't you one of the, the speakers on that webinar? Yeah, yeah, I sure was. And and I may be biased, but I think it was a pretty good program, pretty informative, covering best practices for employment handbooks, policy development, the importance of having an employee handbook, as well as trends and other sort of legal developments that employers should be looking out for in 2022 and beyond. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and speaking mm -hmm. of important trends and developments, another big one that I know we've been focused on for employers with Connecticut operations that, that they need to be aware of is the beginning of the state's paid family and medical leave program on January 1st, 2022. You know, that may sound like it's far away for those of us who haven't been paying attention to the calendar or who feel like 2021 has just been a, a giant blur, but it, it isn't. It's just days away. And that means eligible employees are just days away from being able to receive paid family medical leave benefits for covered absences under that program. So employers better be ready, make sure that they are, are up to speed on what changes are coming. Thankfully, SIFAR hosted another wonderful webinar just a few weeks back on this Connecticut program. In case any Connecticut employers tuning into our podcast today are looking for a quick refresher before the holidays. Yeah, yep. Paid family medical leave is definitely a big topic and, and a good lead in for the focus of today's episode, where we'll be pivoting away from the very hot topic of COVID-19 vaccines and accommodations that we covered in episode one and two. And we're focusing on another very important topic and, and a topic that is also a byproduct of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is an increased focus on a federal paid leave legislation. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Meg. You know, after an amazing first two episodes, we have another timely, hugely important topic to cover today, and that is the Federal Paid Family and Medical Leave, or PFML for short, uh, proposal in the Build Back Better Act, you know, the legislation that's been floating around Congress for the last few months. And we're talking about a PFML proposal that has the potential to be you know, a really big deal for employers of all shapes, colors, sizes, industries, you name it. Yeah, yeah, definitely one of our favorite topics and, and another opportunity to churn out a great acronym. For those of you out there who have heard of the acronym BBBA, that is the Build Back Better Act that we're going to be talking about today. It also is known as HR 5376, or you may have heard it called the Reconciliation Bill. It has a variety of names and a variety of provisions, many of which have gained national attention since the bill was introduced 
in the House in late September of 2021. Of course, for our purposes today, we're focused on the paid family and medical leave provisions exclusively, which looked a bit dicey in the House before it was ultimately voted on and passed on in November, uh, November 19th to be exact. Yep. And as we'll get into, you know, the fate of, and this will be the the first of a few times, I think that folks will hear both of these acronyms thrown together. So it's a bit of a mouthful, but the fate of the BBBA's PFML provision is still on thin ice, uh, as all eyes are now turned to the Senate to see what's going to happen to the bill as a whole and its federal paid family medical leave provision in the coming days. You know, I'll, I'll tell you, I personally am exhausted. The bill's unique substantive provisions, complicated legislative process, especially in the Senate, the ever-looming possibility of significant amendments, you know, around every corner, and of course, the constant media coverage of all of this has made tracking, here it is again, the BBBA's PFML details basically, you know, a nonstop effort. And that is why we are so lucky and have the esteemed pleasure of welcoming Eilis Schumann from the American Benefits Council as today's guest to help us keep everything straight and in order. Eilis is the Senior Vice President of Health Policy for the American Benefits Council. In this role, Eilis directs the development and advocacy of the Council's health policy priorities. Before joining the Council staff, Eilis was the Council's Policy Board of Directors Advisory Council, a representative from Littler Mendelssohn, where she was the co-chair of the Workplace Policy Institute. In this role, Eilis provided strategic counsel and representation to clients on a broad array of workplace issues and developments in Congress and uh, executive branch federal agencies. She was also a member of the firm's ERISA and employee benefits practice and co-led the firm's legislative and regulatory practice. A former top congressional staff member and policy advisor, Eilis worked on the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions from 2001 to 2008, culminating in her role as a minority staff director and chief counsel. Wow, welcome, Elise. I'm exhausted from just getting through your introduction, but again, we're so happy you're here with us. Well, thanks, Meg, and I'm happy to be here, too. You know, Elise, it really is an honor. I know we, we've worked together for, for quite a bit in the past, and I'm so, so absolutely excited that we get to work together again in this, this new you know, podcast format. You know, feels so 2021 that we get to move into this new sphere today. You know, Elise, can you tell us, you know, just a little bit about your background, experience with federal sort of paid leave legislation, both this year, you know, and in and past years as it's come up um, in your practice? And, you know, I guess more generally, too, leave of absence, time off laws, you know, at state level as well. Well, thanks, Josh. And, and let me begin by saying that paid leave is a top issue for the member companies of the American Benefits Council. And these are some of the nation's largest employers, many of them with operations in all 50 states. And they recognize the importance of providing paid leave to maintain a healthy and productive workforce and help their employees balance the needs of work and family and offer generous paid leave benefits. However, the challenge of complying with the ever-expanding number of state and local paid leave laws is a significant and growing concern for them. 
That's why we developed, with your help, Josh, and the help of your colleagues, our National Paid Leave Atlas. And this is a members-only atlas that is a map of all of the latest state and local paid leave laws and regulations. It's ever-expanding. And if you look at our map, it seems like it's becoming more and more populated. And it's also the reason why the council has been advocating for a federal solution that provides nationwide uniformity, like there is for health and retirement benefits. And last year, our board, in fact, approved a statement of principles for federal legislation that would provide universal paid leave based on two key principles. The first being that you really need to leverage private sector solutions, what employers are already doing, and how providing or allowing nationwide uniformity is so critical to that effort and really critical to allowing and enabling employers to continue to grow and provide these paid leave benefits, which we know through the pandemic really did become even more important and more of a focus by policymakers in Washington as well as around the country. Can you walk us through a general timeline of the most recent federal paid family and medical leave push since the Biden administration took over in January, including how it has evolved since the BBBA was first introduced in the House in September? Sure. Well, I think we really need to go back to April of this year. And that's when two things really happened right around the same time. President Biden released his American Family Plan that called for a national federal paid family and medical leave program. A little sparse on details, but um, certainly that was a priority in this American Family Plan. Also, it was included when Chairman Richie Neal, who is the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, released his draft Building an Economy for Families Act. And that was really the birth of the Build Back Better Act and the same sort of structure with some modifications that Congress and the Senate is debating now. Fast forward to May, where the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee held a hearing on Paid Family and Medical Leave Act, indicating that it was a priority for the Senate, too. And the council and one of our member companies, IBM, actually testified on behalf of the council at that Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee hearing really talking about the need for federal legislation that did leverage private sector solutions and also provided the nationwide uniformity that our member companies so desperately need. Then let's fast forward a couple of months to September, and that's when Chairman Neal of the House Ways and Means Committee introduced or released the next iteration of the BIFA Building and Economy for Families Act, and that was the Build Back Better Act. And the Build Back Better Act that was released in September provided for 12 weeks of paid family and medical leave that would be available through one of three sources. 
either a federal government program administered out of the Department of Treasury by legacy states, that is the states that currently have paid family and medical leave programs on the books, or by employers that choose to offer a federal paid leave program that meets at least the same requirements of that federal standard, meaning a 12-week program, and they would be reimbursed at a 90% for that by the federal government as long as they met certain standards. Now, what we saw from that trajectory from what was introduced in the House to what was ultimately passed in the House and now being considered in the Senate was facing a lot of budgetary pressure to contain the scope and cost of that program. That program was ultimately narrowed to get it through the House. And it was narrowed to effectively reduce it from 12 weeks to four weeks. But I think what's notable is that the fundamental issue and challenge and concern that we related to the House Ways and Means Committee and others in Congress is that it still did not address that need for federal uniformity. It effectively keeps in place those federal legacy states, those states that already have programs in the District of Columbia. And it also doesn't preclude any new states from topping off on the federal benefit. And at least, I mean, such a really tremendous information and detail. And I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's been only, what, eight months since April? And it feels like we've been, you know, around and around, you know, a dozen times here with different different ebbs and flows of this legislation and the proposal and the framework and, and, and all that, all those pieces. So many good points that you just made. I know we want to unpack quite a few of them over, over the next couple of minutes here. So let's maybe start with with one that I think is, you know, is really sort of notable. Now, you mentioned the scaled back number of weeks, right, going from 12 to four weeks in the latest iteration. Let me ask, what, what are some of the other, you know, the basics of the paid family medical leave proposal as it stands today, you know, sitting and, and, and simmering in the Senate? The benefits would kick in in 2024, and it would be available for any worker. So there are no size restrictions on the size of employers uh, like there is under the Family and Medical Leave Act. Interestingly, the categories for eligibility would include everything under the FMLA, but would go beyond that in terms of certain definitions of family members. And so it's an expansion of the FMLA. It's the FMLA plus. Now, because of the constraints of the budget reconciliation process, they can't really go in and change the FMLA. So what they're doing is just building upon the FMLA for purposes of this paid leave program. But that is really one of the issues that we have highlighted as I think a significant operational issue is that there is a lack of alignment with the FMLA. And so therefore, you know, certain events that are not covered by the FMLA would be covered by this. And obviously, if it's an FMLA covered event of unpaid FMLA leave, there's the job protection that would go along with that. However, for those category of covered events and eligible employers or eligible caregiving leave beyond the FMLA, 
there wouldn't be any job protection, again, because of the constraints, I think, of the budget reconciliation process, which effectively said you can't include any just policy provisions in here. They really have to have a measurable federal budgetary impact. There is, I mentioned before, this eligible employer grant for employers that did want to offer and receive a federal grant compensating them for 90% of the cost of these benefits if they met certain requirements. There is a job protection requirement built into that. But I think, you know, you see there is definite daylight between the FMLA, between this new program and job protection. And and that's really a question about how it all would fit together. Yeah. Wow. So it sounds like in in addition to, you know, trying to deal with the paid family and medical leaves at a state level, there's also a large level of coordination with the existing FMLA law as well, which, which sounds very complicated. Related to that point, how would the PFML handle covered family members? Would that follow the same setup as the FMLA? The definition of a covered family member would be broader than under the federal FMLA, picking up some of the state definitions. But again, so you would have a disconnect between the definition of a covered family member under the Build Back Better Act proposal and the federal FMLA. Okay, that makes sense. And then in terms of the employer coverage bar being so low, especially compared to FMLA, so employers who are not currently covered by the FMLA would be covered, it sounds like, by this PFML proposal. What impact do you expect this paid leave mandate would have on small and medium-sized employers, including their ability to sort of continue operations and find and afford labor or or replacements for their their current employees in terms of the lengthy employee absences? Well, you you refer to it as an employer mandate, and it's really not technically Mm -hmm. an employer mandate. What it is, is it's a benefit for employees, and the employee could then get that from the federal government. They could get that from a state, or if their employer chose to offer those benefits to that employee, it would be through the employer. So it's not technically, again, an employer mandate requiring you know, employers of any size to directly provide these benefits, but there's just a lot of unanswered questions around that job protection, around you know, the interplay with the FMLA, the interplay with existing state requirements. Would you say it's more akin to like a wage replacement benefit than it really is a leave entitlement? Well, I think it tries to be both. It's just that the leave part of it, there's, again, some daylight for the leave requirement on employers who do not want to have or choose not to provide the benefits directly to their employees, but have them migrate to the federal program instead. And so, therefore, those employees or those covered circumstances that would not also constitute an FMLA qualifying event might find themselves with eligibility to a benefit, but query, where is the job protection or the leave, you know, requirement for employers associated with that? That's, again, why there's a disconnect here. Interesting. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, it's also fascinating. And when we, you know, we, we all sort of operate in this, this leaves of absence space enough to know that 
all, all the, the points we're kind of going over here, I mean, one of the biggest kind of elephants in the room is this coordination of benefits topic. You know, one of the hardest and most challenging aspects of, of leave mandates and leave laws and, and you know, wage replacement laws is figuring out how they intersect with one another, how they stack on top of each other or can run concurrently, both with other other laws as well as existing you know, employer policies. And in this case, paid bonding leave, parental leave policies and the like. I'm curious, just so we can sort of dive back into this point, because it has been mentioned a little bit already, but it, it sounds like, and what I, what I believe I'm hearing is that there really wouldn't be any preemption of state programs. And I think you mentioned both in terms of, of legacy existing state paid family leave programs and perhaps also future state programs if they wanted to go above and beyond, you know, the, let's assume it's four weeks, right, above and beyond the four-week threshold that the, the federal you know, PFML legislation would, would bring to the table if it's enacted as is. Is that all sort of right? Am I remembering all that correctly? You are remembering all that correctly. And, and that's right. And that is what the council has strongly been advocating to Congress and to the administration is about the peril of that lack of uniformity and that we've been advocating for the uniformity that employers need so nationwide employers can, in fact, know that they have one uniform standard that they need to comply with. And our concern, and that's why we formed, the council formed its LEAVE coalition to really be the face of this advocacy effort was really to communicate and have the policymakers understand the challenges for an employer of having to comply with maybe now a federal, a state, and maybe even a local requirement, and how that really impedes the ability of employers to ensure that they're treating their employees equitably, regardless of where they live or work, and their ability to really be innovative, too, in offering benefits, generous benefits that really meet the needs of their workforce. It sounds like they're really, under this current BBA legislation, there are really three alternative avenues for employees to receive paid family medical leave benefits, either through an existing legacy state program, through a sufficient employer-provided program, or through the new federal PFML program. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Yeah, and it's so interesting, too, Elise. I mean, one thing that I've been trying to work through, and and I know employers with multi-state nationwide operations are concerned with, is if the floor of the BBBA, you know, the four weeks is set as is, understanding it's trying to get it within a larger you know, overall price tag that's still you know, included in the package, that some states might not be satisfied by that threshold, by that bar, and, and think to themselves, let me look at New York or Massachusetts or New Jersey or Washington, California, and see what they're offering. Oh, if it's greater than the four weeks, maybe I should hop on that bandwagon. Is that something that you're concerned with? Absolutely. I think that concern became even more of a concern when the number of weeks that the federal program would provide was reduced from 12 weeks to four weeks, because I think that is going to incentivize a number of states that don't have programs currently to get into the game and to try to top off on that federal program, making the patchwork more of a patchwork. 
I, I just want to point out something that our members are large nationwide employers, but this issue of differing state and local laws, I think, has become more widespread with the pandemic and more and more workers working remotely, maybe not in the state where their office used to be, or maybe they've moved permanently to another state. And even you know, smaller employers have become multi-state employers. So this is no longer really just a large employer issue, this patchwork of different state requirements of being a multi-state employer. Yeah, it, it's such a great point. I'm, and I'm, I'm smiling here because it, it's like you're reading the notes for one of our next few episodes, which is, <laughs> you know, we are thinking, you know, about this concept of mobile and hybrid remote work as, as being such a hot topic for tons of employment law, you know, issues, but, you know, leave management certainly being one of them. So, you know, if you, if you do have a copy of my notes, let me know how you're, how you're doing that. <laughs> One final sort of related point is I know this coordination of benefits, we've been on it for a few minutes, but it is, like I said before, so fascinating and so interesting for employers trying to navigate this space. From the, the employer-provided policy angle, what are some of the benefits? You know, if, I, if I'm a company who's trying to think through, you know, I have a current paid leave program, you know, paid family leave, paid you know, bonding leave, maternity leave, what have you. What are the benefits of me sort of adjusting and upping that program, changing it around to meet whatever the criteria are that the BBBA is setting for me to, you know, check the box that, yes, I'm complying through this program? Are there benefits for them? Because it feels like to have to go through the process of making the updates and then the employer then being responsible for administering the program, maybe that juice isn't worth the squeeze, so to speak. And that's exactly the point that we've tried to make to policymakers is from the standpoint of even the burden on the federal government, you want employers to be able to continue and even expand providing their own benefits, lest those employees migrate instead to the federal program and increase the cost of that federal program and its own administrative challenges. You know, and I think also just from the employee perspective, they'd rather go to their HR department than have to go to a new federal program, navigate that bureaucratic maze. It really sounds like there are a lot of moving pieces here for employers and probably a lot of open questions in terms of how to comply and, and what employers would need to be doing should this pass as is. What are the most significant open questions or ambiguities with the BBBA FPFML, there I am getting tripped up by all the acronyms, proposal as it currently is drafted that employers should be on the lookout for and hopefully get some resolution in the event this paid leave portion of the legislation goes to President Biden's desk for his signature. Well, I don't think they're going to get resolution if the current proposal, as is, makes it across the finish line. And I think, Josh, some of the issues that you were bringing up about the coordination of benefits, how that works together, the alignment or rather lack of alignment with the FMLA. I think these are all significant operational issues that have not been addressed. But mm -hmm. I just want to reiterate yeah. Yeah. that our members really want universal pay leave. They want Congress to act because Congress is the only one that can act to really provide some relief from this patchwork of state and maybe, you know, local laws and recognize how important an issue this is. And it's a really important issue to get right for employers and employees. 
Yeah, that's right on point there. And I know you've mentioned quite a bit already about some of the different steps the council has taken in terms of responding and reacting to the BBBA legislation. Anything else? I know you've mentioned some advocacy efforts. Have you guys also done any, you know, any polling, congressional outreach? You know, you know, we have done extensive outreach to Congress, to the White House, to the administration. We also did some polling with ALG research. And according to the polling, a nationwide poll of voters by a two to one margin Voters would prefer to have paid leave benefits administered solely by their employer rather than by a combination of their employer and state government or the federal government. So I think that's really important. And we certainly convey that, you know, to policymakers. And also in the same poll, more than twice as many voters believe that employees working for the same job for the same company should receive the same amount of paid leave benefits, regardless of the state in which they work. So I think those were really compelling figures about what's on the mind of, of voters. Absolutely. So I know, it, and maybe it, it, it's hard, hard to tell, and, and we aren't asking you to predict the future, but could you explain at a high level what the BBBA PFML provision is currently facing in the Senate, both in terms of the Democratic caucus being on the same page and the budget reconciliation process and the role of the Senate parliamentarian? Like, what does it have to go through to sort of make it to the next step? I think the two most important people in Washington right now are the Senate parliamentarian and Senator Joe Manchin, the Senate parliamentarian who has to decide which provisions of this big package pass muster under the budget reconciliation process and the so-called birdbath. And that is the stripping any provisions from this package that don't have that budgetary impact that I was talking about, so ancillary policy provisions. And secondly, Senator Manchin, whose 50th vote is obviously essential to the Senate being able to pass this. And he has expressed concerns with the paid family medical leave provision in particular and, you know, calling, I think, for that to be addressed outside of the reconciliation process in a bipartisan manner. Elise, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Everything, you know, the the insight, the information, fascinating and educational. Obviously, there are so many moving pieces involved with the Build Back Better Act legislation, the paid family medical leave provision. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you. Yes, and thanks everyone for joining us today again for our third episode of Take It or Leave It. We look forward to seeing you all at our next episode. Thanks and happy holidays, everyone.